I feel a new energy pulsing through Studio <laughs> 2. Welcome, nice. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Mike and Scott. I'm in for Cherry Greg. I usually do host The Pulse, hence the nice little pun <laughs> Avi just made. I'm glad to be here. On today's show, it's going to be really fun. We're going to chat with a baking blogger, Philly's own Dan Langen, who gives home baking tips to thousands of his online followers. And today, he'll share that wisdom with us. So please get in there with your baking questions. You can find us, right? That's right. Email studio2 at whyy.org or call 888-477-9499 with your baking thoughts and questions. Staying on the holiday theme, Mikan, you've seen the packages piling up on porches and doorsteps. How do they get there? Mm. Who does the labor? And how is the world of trucking and shipping changing? We're going to talk with a trucking sociologist, Steve Vaselli, later in the hour. But first, Mikan, if you know how our show works, mm-hmm. and I think you do. I do. We, <laughs> no, we I hope just at showed this up, point, We hope at this point you do. Um, we're going to do some news headlines, uh, right. and we're going to start with something that did break this morning. Some news in the, the world of healthcare and mm-hmm. hospitals, your areas of expertise. Um, Jefferson and Lehigh Valley Health Networks announced that they are planning to combine. This would create a massive hospital system through our region up into the Lehigh Valley with about 30 hospitals. This system would be the second largest nonprofit healthcare system in the state, one of the 20 biggest in the country. So big news in the world of regional healthcare. Again, Jefferson and Lehigh Valley Health Networks planning to combine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so- there's another angle to this, too, where Jefferson is now also offering health care plans mm-hmm. under the Obamacare, you know, situation. Yep. So this really changes what this hospital does and what this health system will do, where it's not just providing medical services, it's also now providing insurance. And this is not uncommon. Health, There are lots of big health systems that yep. do that all over the country. But this is a new play for Jefferson, for sure. And Jefferson has been expanding like crazy in many ways. You know, uh, they used to have like three hospitals about a decade ago. They had just three hospitals. Now, 30 hospitals. They also acquired Philadelphia University and created Thomas Jefferson University. You mentioned the health insurance thing. So this is um, an organization whose footprint in our region seems to be growing by the year. And it's just something to, to keep our eyes on. Absolutely. And, you know, when I first started reporting on health and healthcare in this city, Jefferson was more the kind of cute, ambitious, quaint. yeah, little sibling to Penn, yeah. for sure. Like, But then you could see, wow, there's a lot of ambition there. There's a lot of things happening. There are changing and growing. And now, pow, this thing is going to be huge. I don't know. I don't want to speak for the audience. I would love to hear a Pulse story about it at some point. I don't know. Um, <laughs> All right. We'll speaking see what of we can mergers do. and acquisitions and local stuff, Mike, and what's our second story? Oh, this is a fun one where you combine coffee and yogurt. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, Delicious. not literally, Sounds not great. literally, not not in the same cup. But I would try that though. I would try. No, that. I would not. It okay. would curdle. Uh, it would be disgusting. <laughs> Agree so to disagree. Do not. Like we'll ice talk- coffee and yogurt, maybe. Okay. No, no, you're on to the totally wrong track. <laughs> we'll talk to our baker about that. But hear me out here. So. La Colombe, you're familiar. La mm-hmm. Colombe, the coffee shop, the coffee brand, beloved in our region, they were sold to Greek yogurt brand Chobani 
on Friday. Mm. So this is a big deal. The price was $900 million. And I think, again, it kind of changes the gestalt of what La Colombe is and has been for our region. Working in some German there. I like yes. that. Yeah, um, you know. It is interesting. And one of the things that it made me think about was that when La Colombe when I first, you know, started going to La Colombe mm-hmm. in Philly, it was really about the cafe experience. The yes. cafes, like, I don't know if this is still true, but they didn't have, like, Wi-Fi. It was sort of like a be-present space. Yes. And that was really what was forefront in the brand. Then they started making the the canned coffee drinks that you could buy, um, like, in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. And I think from what I've read, uh, including at WHYY.org, Kristen Mossberger Garza has a piece up right mm-hmm. now. That this latest move by Chobani is to turn La Cologne more and more into a retail product. So more of those canned coffee drinks, maybe creamers, sort of other diversifying their portfolio. So it's less about the cafes and more about the products that you can buy in stores that say La Cologne on them. And it's an mm-hmm. interesting evolution for a local company. Yeah. So I wonder, but I guess the experience of going to a La Cologne will still feel the same. We, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, there's a locker room right around the corner from us. I go there a all lot. the time. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I hope it's the same. But it doesn't sound like, from what I read, it doesn't sound like the idea here is to create like a locker room on every corner in every city, like there's a Starbucks. It sounded like it was more retail play. Like, obviously, I'm not a business expert, but just reading Kristen's reporting, yes. that's the sense I got. And that maybe people all over will be able to buy La Cologne yes. coffee more frequently, all of those things. So we will keep an eye on that and report back. But again, it's like big news, this big Business. international company buying a beloved Philadelphia player. Mike, and I'm sorry. About what? But we have one more story to get uh. to. That was my apology. <laughs> oh. Apparently, Pennsylvanians are very, very good at apologizing, according to a new poll from a company I've never heard of called Preply, maybe Preply, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, they polled people about apologies all over the country, and they determined somehow scientifically that Pennsylvanians make the most sincere apologies. Uh, Mike, and you have apology thoughts. I have apology thoughts. So okay. I recently, you know, Dr. Dan, right? Oh, Dr. Dan Dr. Gottlieb. Dan. Yes, he had a radio show for a long time on WHYY that I produced. I talked to Dan every Monday. And we recently talked about sincere apologies and what that means. Mm-hmm. And what Dan told me that made a lot of sense to me was that what a real apology requires is first that you listen. So let's say I'm mad at you, Avi, and you've done something terrible, Uh. right? Yeah. So the first thing you have to do is just sit there and listen. And while I'm telling you, yeah, you're making a face already, so (laughs) don't make that face. I don't know what I did. Give me the neutral face and just, yeah, just listen. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to tell you all the things. And while I tell you, you can't be like, well, that's not how it, that's not what happened. Don't get defensive. Yeah. yeah, Don't get defensive. So you have to listen. You have to let it settle in, and then you have to take a deep breath, and then you can say your apology. But so yeah. the apology really starts before you even start speaking. Like there's a there's a pre-apology stage. Yes. To create a good apology, which yes. is just shutting up. Yes, and I'm listening. not very good at that, though. Well, you can learn. You can learn. <laughs> just take a deep breath, take a deep listen. But I think it's very important to to do the act of listening, and then to say, "I'm really sorry," and yeah. I'm. 
wow, I didn't even realize that this was happening. So you don't apologize like my children apologize, which is like, sorry. <laughs> that That is not Dang, a sincere apology. My kids, kids are catching strays on the show. <laughs> but, you know, you say you're sorry. So I don't know why Pennsylvanians would be yeah. any better at this. Your guess is as good as mine, but we'll take it, right? Sure. Sure. It's nice to be number one. Exactly. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> sorry to the other states. Sorry to, we're not as good. We are sincerely sorry. So sorry. To all of the other states, New Jersey and Delaware included. Yeah, especially. Um, Mike, and are you a fan of holiday light displays? Do you do holiday light displays at your house? I do not because I'm not very ambitious. and <laughs> I. But I admire them. At other people's homes. Okay. I greatly admire them. Though I must say that sometimes they feel a little over the top where it's like, is this a helicopter landing pad? Or <laughs> is this like, you know. What why? are you really doing here? Yeah, what are we really yeah. doing? Um, well, speaking of over the top, I don't know how you'll feel about this next uh, segment. As we enter the holiday home stretch, if you're looking for a little lift mm-hmm. to your holiday spirit, something festive to do with visiting relatives, there's a block in South Philly that offers a high-voltage jolt of Christmas that's among the best in the nation. WHYY's Matt Gillum takes us down to South 13th Street to look at its famous Christmas lights. Nothing sets the holiday mood like old blue eyes singing in the Christmas waltz. There's no frost on the window panes, but even though it's a brisk night, a steady stream of people and cars are making their way along this block of 13th Street. Nearly every house has an illuminated display that could rival the light show at Macy's. Some homes twinkle, some flash, others have music or festive scenes spilling onto the sidewalk. It's getting more elaborate, these vignettes that people are doing sort of in front of the bay windows. That seems like a newer thing over the last couple of years. Amie Sanders is strolling along the block, taking in the festive feast for the eyes. She's been coming to the Miracle on South 13th Street display for a decade. Surrounded by the tens of thousands of lights, she says the block captures a childhood feeling she always wanted. I always tried to convince my parents to let me sleep under the Christmas tree. I wanted that feeling of lights overhead of being like surrounded by lights. And this sort of feels like the, the feeling I was going for as a kid. Sanders and pretty much everyone enjoying the spectacle are kids again as they marvel at the lights. People are smiling, pointing out certain features, and taking pictures in front of some of the houses. What started more than 20 years ago as a few homes putting up a lot of lights has grown into something that gets national attention. Earlier this month, USA Today declared the miracle on South 13th Street one of the 10 best light displays in the country. This summer, Christopher Dean moved his family to a house in the heart of the light zone, he only lived a few streets over, so he knew what he was signing up for, metaphorically. Did you have to sign a contract to, you know, say you were going to participate? And there was none of that. It was very welcoming for everybody, and everybody really helpful on the block to help us sort of figure out what to do. With a Christmas tree shining in the front window, Dean's house is arrayed with light-studded garlands and several illuminated ice-skating penguins. He says the neighborhood ramps up planning for the annual event early in the fall. There's a meeting, I think this year, it was like early October, where they gathered everybody together, talked about all the joint communal things that would happen, like the lights along the top of the houses. You know, and then it was sort of every weekend after Halloween was people were out decorating. After putting all the decorations up, the lights get turned on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Every night for several hours, part of 13th Street becomes visible from space. Dean says he's happy to participate in the lights, but since he's new to the neighborhood, there's one thing he's still in the dark about. 
We have not yet seen the electric bill, so we're gonna find out. A fitting holiday surprise. While he knew the level of decorating 13th Street is on the map for, his neighbor on the block, Caitlin Pryor, moved in blithely unaware of just how serious the transformation is. It was mentioned, however, we didn't have a place to live and we're moving from New York City to Philly, so it was kind of like a, oh yeah, sure, that's fine. And then we came to know what it really was. <laughs> Through a smile and more laughter, she says she's well aware of USA Today singling out the street as one of the best decoration displays in the country. Just then, the sound of a roaring engine driving up the block confirms it. Um, <laughs> we get these. What is this? Tour bus uh, extravaganza. It's basically a party on a bus, is my understanding of it. A party bus that looks like a trolley creeps down the street. There's a line of cars behind it, many with their windows rolled down to take in the sights and sounds of the block. Driving through the display is an option, but there's something a little more magical about leisurely strolling up and down the block in the cold night air. That's what Sonny Allencar and his girlfriend Aperva Navin are doing. I am feeling festive. I'm also freezing. Um, but yeah, this is, this is, I wish it was snowing, but the lights are, they're, they're doing it. I was just telling him, I think all I need is now like a hot cup of hot chocolate or something to walk down here. Yeah, that'd be nice. There's your pro tip, bring a thermos of something hot. But if you don't, a crackling and glowing fake fireplace is part of one house's display. Even if you're cold, the carols filling the air and the sense of wonder that comes with that many Christmas lights should be enough to warm you right up. For Studio Two, I'm Matt Gillum. All right, we're feeling festive already, but coming up on Studio Two, we're going to talk about holiday baking. So what are your favorite recipes or treats? What are your baking challenges? Call us at 888-477-9499. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi wolfman Aaron. And I'm Mike and Scott filling in for Cherry Greg today. So, Avi, this is going to be my favorite part of this show forever because we're going to talk about desserts, holiday baking specifically. So do you have a favorite holiday treat? Favorite holiday treat? Um, not, in terms of cookies. Not like one specific one. I have, I have favorite like Philly bakeries. Because I, I, I don't bake a lot myself. Mm -hmm. So I love um, Mighty Bread Company, South Philly. Shout out Lost Bread Company, Machine Shop, um, Artisan Boulanger. Like it's holidays, I'm going to these places and just picking up what they got. You know oh, what I okay. mean? How about you? Do you bake for <laughs> I holidays? do bake. Okay. I do bake. So I make a lot of like traditional German Christmas cookies, which mm. are a little different. But different. I'm well different than the typical American fare. But how so? No, I'm I don't know. Just you know, they're, just they're less like colors, less decorations. They are focused more on the actual flavor and the texture <laughs> oh, of the wow. cookie. Ooh. No, oh, I'm wow. like throwing baking shade hot already. Takes. Let's just yeah, no hot take. Okay, <laughs> let's just turn to our guest. How about <laughs> let's it? Do 
this. Uh, Dan Langan is here with us now to defend American baking, maybe. Yes. Um, he's a blogger and baker and the author of Bake Your Heart Out Foolproof Recipes to Level Up Your Home Baking. Dan, welcome to Studio Two. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me both. Thank Excited. you. We um, <clears throat> we want our listeners to call in and email in with questions about baking because you're, you're game to try to answer anything. Yeah, I mean, if there's anything uh, that I love, it's a rapid fire uh, baking Q&A session. All so right. Let's go for it. Dan, stepping up to the plate, email mm. us your favorite holiday recipe, your questions, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. But Dan... Before we get to our caller, emailers, um, I just want you to give me a pep talk because I am a little scared of baking and I'm scared of the precision of baking Mm. and I'm a pretty sloppy cook, but I can get away with that when I'm not baking. Why should I not be scared of baking? (laughs) You know, I mean, I think a lot of people are intimidated by baking because it is precise. Mm -hmm. So we can stand and make soup or stew and just kind of intuitively throw things into the pot and bake, you know, cook by our senses. But when it comes to baking, it really is about balance. So flour, butter, sugar, all of those things need to be balanced literally by weight so that the ratios are correct and you can, you know, arrive where you want to arrive. But it's also baking can be relaxing. It doesn't have to be perfect every single time, right? Like if you make cookies, your family, your friends, they're going to love them even if they don't look exactly like they do in the photo. So I think you have to cut yourself a little bit of slack. Uh, That's something my mom always tells me is, you know, it's great. Give yourself a break. <laughs> but so sometimes it feels like a small change or a small misstep can have a pretty big result that is not what you want. Like if the butter is a little bit too cold or it's a little bit too soft or the oven is a little bit too hot. There just seems to be, you know, a lot of things that you have to pay attention to. That's that's true. I think I'm definitely one of those people that likes to uh know what the outcome of things is going to be and try Mm -hmm. to strive for perfection as much as I can. So having baked all of my life, it's definitely been a, you know, a day-to-day masterclass in letting go a little bit of, you know, a little bit of control um, (laughs) when it comes to outcomes, because you can, you can set yourself up for success, but when it comes to food, things are always a little bit different every single time. And I think that's what keeps it exciting. You know, the the slightly different outcome. That's true. So you should relax when it comes to baking. Don't, you know, don't feel so I'm trying to, Dan. I'm really (laughs) trying to. Um, So I am going to, I really want to start eating some cookies that you bought in for us. Please, go for uh, it. Because I am self-interested, if nothing else. (laughs) And and, (laughs) and I want to eat this cookie here, um, but also get into your history as a baker as I... As I eat it. So tell me about this cookie first. What am I holding here? So that cookie you have in your hand is called a buttery sandwich cookie. Mm. So the the first ingredient is butter, which is, you know, hence (laughs) hence the name. I already am a fan. It is sandwiched with a little bit of uh, strawberry jam. Mm. It's actually Mm. seedless strawberry jam because not everyone likes the seeds. But um, that's a really mm. classic cookie that I think. Oh, it's so good. Oh, thank you. There's some orange zest in there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can taste that. It's mm-hmm. up. I love up. zest. Orange specifically, orange zest provides so much flavor whenever you're baking. And oh, it's kind of so an, good. It's an all year round thing. Um, so those are the type of cookies you would see if you went into a bakery, a classic bakery mm-hmm. now. Or if you walked into a bakery, you know, 50 years ago, you probably would see a piped butter cookie like that. And you, when you were a kid in Philly, you used to work at one of these types of bakeries, yeah, right? Yeah, so I, it was, it was uh, in Havertown, actually, where I grew up. I worked at a family bakery that had opened an Italian bakery, and they just had cases and cases filled with all kinds of cookies, and those were actually one of them. And the cool thing about those is that they're they're handmade, they're hand-piped, so everyone's a little bit different. They all look a little different. So how do you – so just to describe them to our listeners, they look like a rose from the top. Yep. Yeah. Really pretty. 
So how do you pipe them so nicely? They would never look like this if I tried to pipe them out. Well, I mean, the, I've, I've practiced a few times. I've piped a few cookies in my day. And actually, I would call that a rosette. So it's also a really mm-hmm. familiar motion if you've piped with a piping bag on top of a cupcake, kind of that circular swirl mm-hmm. motion that you do. And the trick with those cookies is to, as you were saying a second ago, to have your butter at a specific temperature. So if your butter is very soft and you whip it up until it's really light and shiny and almost looks like uh, yogurt or mayonnaise, that's the consistency or the texture that you need so the dough is soft enough that you can actually pipe mm. it. And and these the the cookies themselves have a little almond flour in them, right? Is that correct? You know, they they do in the book have some almond flour, but I did leave it out because I wasn't <gasps> sure, you know, who would oh, be eating them. That's so that's but, so thoughtful, Dan. Yeah, Thank the, you. You know, the almond flour in baking is really nice because it has a nice subtle flavor. It gets yeah. really mm-hmm. toasty when you bake it, and it also provides bulk to something without adding texture. So it gives you a fine kind of crumbly texture yeah. when you add it to a cookie, which is nice. And I blew Avi's mind earlier when I explained to him that <laughs> almond flour is literally just almonds. It is. I it's, it was flour. <laughs> no. It's ground up almonds. And you know, you can actually toast almond flour too. So mm-hmm. if you put it in a skillet on a really low heat and just mm. keep moving it around, you can toast it the same way you would toast almonds yeah. if you were going to put them in a cookie or something. We are talking with Dan Langen, a uh, blogger, uh, social media maven, author of Bake Your Heart Out. Uh, Dan's got like hundreds of thousands of followers online and you're sharing some baking tips with us now because it's the holiday season. Um, I want to get to uh, a caller. This is Jennifer on line one who I think has like a favorite recipe to share with us. Jennifer, you're on studio two. Uh, what do you got? Hi there. Uh, I have a, a bourbon ball recipe. That's Ooh. what I like to make every year. I usually change it up every year except for the bourbon balls. Those are a mainstay. <laughs> Bourbon balls and and uh, what and what's the the, the trick main to, ingredient yeah. is bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a lot of bourbon. <laughs> but what's what's and like your what, yeah? What why do you love the bourbon balls so much? Well, they're no bake, so they're mm-hmm. so that's easy. I mean, I'll, I'll I can always do a baked one, but there's that, and then it's just nice to go out and and pinch one from time to time, or go nick one when I'm like, oh, I just want a little <laughs> something chocolatey, and just go grab a bourbon ball. Um, I'm not a huge bourbon drinker, but with the sweet stuff that's in the ball, it, it mellows it a little bit. So they're mm-hmm. just, they're nice. <laughs> I actually think we and might make bourbon that... balls this year. Like, I think Jennifer and I are on the same wavelength with me yeah. and my family. Because I, I like Great the... mind. <laughs> and by the way, thanks for the call, Jennifer. I mean, so Dan, obviously you're a baker. Yeah. But sometimes yeah. A, a, a nice way to approach this stuff at first is to do a no-bake thing, you know. <laughs> Totally. Just just ease your way into it. Uh, do you do you ever do bourbon balls, sort of no-bake type stuff, or are you always going straight for the oven? You know, no, I, I do love no-bake desserts. There's actually a really uh, slamming no-bake cheesecake in that book. Ooh. Cheesecake was a big love deal cheesecake. for me. Yeah, yes. I mean, my, my mom loved it. My mom loved it growing up. So um, I was one of those kids, as soon as I heard my mom loved something, I was like, I will make it. I will make it for you every day oh. because you love it. So I made a lot of cheesecake growing up. And no-bake cheesecake is actually really simple. Uh, because you use a press-in crust, so graham crackers, sandwich cookies, whatever, a little bit of butter. You just press it in the pan. You don't have to bake it. And then the filling itself is basically just cream cheese whipped cream. So you whip it up. It's like a mousse. Oh, you spread it in there. You put it in the fridge. No bake. That sounds oh, amazing. That sounds super, amazing. Super easy. So let's get to some of the questions. So we got an email from Beth who says she's good at gluten-free baking because she has celiac. So that already sounds pretty amazing because that can get tricky. But mm-hmm. she is intimidated by the use of a candy thermometer she would like to make fudge for friends has never used a thermometer any tips for newbies for the candy thermometer 
Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I think when I think of the term candy thermometer, I think of something that's kind of old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know my grandmother had a candy thermometer. They usually they're they're these large glass tubes and they're very fragile and it's kind of a I guess an old-fashioned display I don't use those I actually just use a digital instant read thermometer mm. so the same one that you would have like that, a meat yeah a meat thermometer the same one you would use to test you know I use it for salmon all the time or for you know meat um, you obviously clean it off in between uses and it, it <laughs> registers more quickly when you're making a caramel or some sort of cooked sugar uh, syrup than one of the old-fashioned ones would caramel so. seems like a wild card in the kitchen, honestly. They're like, always messing it up on the Great British on, Baking Show, oh, and I don't, I don't they're know so how. Good at everything I don't else. Know. Really? I don't know how. Is that caramel really happens. that hard? It's hard. Some some chefs have called it like cooking napalm because it just like whoosh, it gets so hot and really? can burn you yeah. really badly, and it can burn in an instant. But it's not that hard. It, it definitely, you no, know, it definitely can be dangerous. I think. I mean, don't quote me on this, but I don't think sugar caramelizes until it starts until it gets upwards of like three hundred degrees. Mm. Yeah, I think that's when the change actually happens. And um, it can be really intimidating. But if you put sugar, dry caramel is what they would call it, no liquid, just straight granulated sugar in a pot um, and heat it, it will start to melt and caramelize on its own. You don't have to do anything to it. But then I guess the trick is when to pull it off the stove. When to pull it off the stove. Yes. Yeah, because it can go from uh, caramelized to burnt very quickly. So, So I think some tips to that would be once it starts to turn color to really turn the heat down so that you're slowing down the process. And also if you use a pot uh, that has a light colored uh, bottom or base like that's white on the inside it's easier to see the color change. Oh that's a great tip. Um, We're talking with Dan Langan author of Bake Your Heart Out. Any holiday baking questions you got Dan's going to take a stab at them. We have an email from Barbara who asks for any tips to keep my softer, chewy cookies from drying out as quickly or keeping my crisp cookies from getting soft. Okay, both ways there. Barbara wants tips both ways. What do you got, Dan? Yeah, you know, it's in my world, it's either it's a crispy cookie or it's a chewy cookie, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't want them to uh, become one or the other. So I would say, number one, store them separately. So, you know, uh, I brought you all some cookies today. I kind of mm. went against my own advice. We've got a chewy chocolate cookie and a crispy one. But <laughs> if you store them together, the moisture will try and kind of cancel each other out, right? Mm-hmm. The chewy cookie will make your crispy cookies soft and vice versa. Um, so chewy cookies, store them on their own. Some people like to put a little bit of bread or maybe a marshmallow in the container, something that's going to hold on to the moisture. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, how does that work? Yeah. So, well, bread or a marshmallow or it's the same way you keep bread brown sugar soft, right? Oh. So if you put some a piece of bread or a marshmallow is more shelf stable. It just is another bit of moisture in the container to help the cookies stay fresh. It sucks that moisture out of the air. Is yes. That, wow, yeah. interesting. So for a chewy cookie, for a crispy cookie, uh, you just want to keep them you know, stored stored in in a in a container and actually I like to when I'm baking crispy cookies and this is one thing I do in the book, uh, once the cookies are done to the point where they're they're brown enough i actually like to turn the oven off and open the door and let them cool in the oven because it's a nice way to really drive off that final bit of moisture and keep them super crispy so if it's if it's a thin and crispy chocolate chip or a biscotti or something like one of those cookies if you let them cool in the oven they stay super crisp Ah, that's a great tip. What's your take on gear? You could spend your life savings on the nicest baking cookie sheets and Mm -hmm. all kinds of mixers. So many pans. Yeah, so many pans. So So what's what's your thinking on that? I mean, gosh, if you saw my basement where I store things, you would probably fall over because I have way too much stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, if, if you had to get one thing, I would say buy yourself a kitchen scale. 
That's the only thing you What's need. What's that? A kitchen scale to to weigh. Oh, ingre- scale. Sorry, to, a scale to weigh ingredients. <laughs> What's a scale? <laughs> <laughs> Micah knows what a scale is, folks. I just I, want to clarify. <laughs> you know, I, I've used the same kitchen scale that I got online. It was like fifteen bucks. Mm-hmm. I've used it for years and years. You just replace the batteries. If you have a kitchen scale and you have a bowl and a spoon and a cookie sheet, you can make so many recipes. There are so many things you can mix by hand. Do you measure with the scale or with the cup measures? So I use a scale for butter, sugar, flour, uh, dairy ingredients like sweetened mm. condensed milk. A scale is really nice for something like molasses or honey because it pours so slowly and it tends to stick to the container that you're measuring into. So if you just put the scale, put a bowl on the scale and measure out 50 grams of honey, it's super, super easy. The only thing that I really use teaspoons for would be salt, baking powder, vanilla extract, things like that. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. scale, not the cup measures. You can use the cup measure. Mm-hmm. Scales also make it easy if you want to double a recipe or even have a recipe, yeah. right? Because you can just have the ingredients by weight. Mm-hmm. I started using a scale pretty recently, and I, I I was surprised at how easy it was. Actually, they're like very easy to use. So and, simple, and it does it does give you that comfort because you're like you know this is the exact amount mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the recipe calls for. Um, we in addition to asking for folks' questions, we also did ask for you know your your holiday baking and cookie traditions. We got an email here from David who says, I'm Jewish American, but I look forward each Christmas season to getting Pfeffernusen. Did, mm-hmm. I, did I pronounce mm-hmm. that right, Mike? Pfeffernusen? Mm-hmm. That's like a German little little dot cookie? Yeah, it's a round cookie, and pfeffer is the word for pepper. Oh. So it I don't think it literally has pepper in it, but it is a little bit of a spicy, like a gingerbread type mm. cookie. Mm-hmm. It's good. Here's another comment from Mac who says, I think it's really cool how... Some families make cultural recipes that don't necessarily have anything to do with their own culture. Nobody in my mm. family is Russian, but for some reason, my mom has been making traditional Russian tea cakes for like 20 <laughs> years. My husband's family makes pizzelles, uh, which I think are Italian, and his family is not. Uh, Dan, do you have things that you make every holiday season? You, you have to make X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I mean, I I make these... We call them snowball cookies. I think some people call them um, wedding cookies or Mm -hmm. there are different names. Usually they have pecans in them. But my uncle, who was actually a Philadelphia firefighter, made them every single year. And he would make Mm -hmm. a batch with pecans for my my grandmother and then some without for my family because my sister couldn't eat the nuts. So those are a very traditional like Christmas cookie for us. And I think they kind of look like little snowballs. So Mm -hmm. they feel Christmassy. They do. So Avi and I have both been eating a delicious. We skipped ahead. I know. Chocolate <laughs> chip cookie. What is this one called? So that is called a chocolate oblivion cookie. Mm. And in the book, I say it's for serious chocoholics only. So I haven't mentioned this yet, but I love chocolate. If mm-hmm. if anyone, you know, is looking for like a chocolate spokesperson, it's me because <laughs> I just every, every day could eat chocolate. <laughs> so with that cookie, I just was testing and testing to try and get it as chocolatey as it possibly could be. And there's actually some balsamic vinegar in there. What? Yeah. That just makes them taste more chocolatey because... Uh, when you add acidity to a recipe, whether it's a cookie or whether it's a stew or a sauce, sometimes the acidity helps the flavors pop. Mm. And I found the balsamic was the was the trick for something chocolatey. So it just enhances the flavor. Balsamic? That's yeah, really balsamic interesting. Vinegar, yeah. Never guessed. Um, Want to get some more questions in? Yeah. Claudia asks, you talked about how precise the baking ratios need to be, but if you're on the baking websites like New York Times, for instance, readers are always reducing the amount of sugar. I'm thinking maybe in the comments mm-hmm. section. Mm-hmm. Is that an ingredient you can play with without messing up the final result? So tinkering with sugar, Claudia thinks maybe. What do you think? 
I say no. I say the Ooh. first time you make a recipe, follow the recipe as it's as mm-hmm. it's written because that's the only way you're going to know what your baseline is. And then after you make it once, then you can go and change it. So my sister and I have this conversation all the time because she's the queen of baking with maple syrup and almond flour and you know all of these things. And um, it really does make a difference. So sugar holds moisture. Sugar keeps things chewy and it keeps them soft. It also allows air to be whipped into something if you're mixing butter and sugar. It's not just flavor. It's part of the structure of the thing. It's not just for sweetness. If you think something's too sweet, don't reduce the sugar. Add a little more salt. And that'll counteract the sweetness. Hmm. So I have yeah. a cookbook writing question sure. for you. You know, so you, you develop your own recipes, do, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. there's only like so many cookies we can create as humans, right? So right. every cookie has probably been baked by somebody who came before us. So how does a recipe become yours where now it's in your cookbook? You know, what does it, what makes it yours. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I think because when when we're creating recipes or we say this is my recipe, I didn't set out and and put a bunch of random ingredients together and say I'm creating a new recipe. I started with the recipe I always made with my grandmother or with the one from the Mrs. Fields cookbook that mm-hmm. I grew up baking. I was a big fan of hers. Um, so for me, a recipe evolves because I'm trying to t- change the taste or the texture or the look. One thing that was always a big deal for me was that when I was little and baked with my mom, our cookies always spread so much. They always just looked like yes. such a hot mess. <laughs> oh my And God. I used to say yes. to my mom, how do we make these cookies not spread as much? So, you know, you add more flour, you reduce the baking soda, you do different things. And I always want cookies to be super chewy. So my chocolate chip cookie in the book, as well as those chocolate ones, has condensed milk in them, which is this really kind of sugary uh, candy-like syrup. So I think recipes evolve over time. And for me, it's just about testing recipe and testing it again and keeping really good notes. And that's how you keep track and of what you're doing. And I guess you know the basic chemistry of if I add something like condensed milk, it creates this effect. If I do X, Y, and Z, it creates another effect. Exactly. I think ingredients are always kind of fitting on a triangle or they're kind of a trifecta. If you look at an ingredient, it's going to affect the taste of something. It's going to affect the texture. It's going to affect the look. So you know, for example, I could add more flour to a cookie and it will spread less. So it might look a little nicer. It may not taste as good. Mm -hmm. It may be a little drier because there's more flour. Um, So everything affects, every ingredient affects multiple parts or outcomes of a recipe. Talking with Dan Lang, an author of Bake Your Heart Out and a social media superstar giving baking tips to thousands of people on the internet every day. And now giving some tips to you, Studio 2 listeners. Um, If you want to give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org with your questions, or maybe you just want to tell us about your holiday traditions. Here's a question from Anne. I think this is pretty basic. If I freeze cookie dough, do I have to thaw it before I bake the cookies? I don't. I, I find you that don't. I find that the cookies bake just as well. If anything, if it's a drop cookie, meaning a cookie you've just scooped out, they'll probably spread a little less because I find that the colder a cookie dough is, the quicker it will set before it continues to spread. But um, you know, that's always up to you. It, when I try a new recipe, sometimes I like to do a test bake. So before I bake a full tray of cookies and you know, maybe I don't like how they turn out. I just bake one or two <laughs> really to, to see what happens. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, that's smart. Have you had any big baking disasters that maybe held a good lesson? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, I could. <laughs> the first one that comes to my mind was actually I was making a wedding cake and um, it was a wedding cake for a couple that wanted specific quotes on the cake. So it wasn't even a baking disaster. It was more of a decorating, <laughs> not disaster because I fixed it. But basically, I ended up decorating a cake with panels that had text on it. 
the night before I was delivering the cake and then taking them off and redoing them at, I don't know, two in the morning because I was leaving for Lancaster, like this three hour drive in the morning. So it was just a very long night and I redecorated an entire cake. What went wrong with the text? It was it was over the summer wedding season. It was super humid. Uh, the uh, text started to run, and it looked like it had this strange shadow to it. And um, cakes can be difficult like that, especially over the summer, because they start to get condensation on them when you take them out of the refrigerator. So it, they can get a little dicey. Yeah, the decorating. Mm-hmm. Any tips on that? I find the decorating is is really challenging. Uh, I, yeah, p- I, piping. I find I don't even approach piping. <laughs> I just don't. I just if it's piping, I'm not doing it. Or like writing on a cake. I'm yeah. like, no, I'm gonna make this look like my first grade project. You know, <laughs> like the second I start squeezing anything out of one of those tubes, it's, <laughs> it already looks terrible. I mean, honestly, it's it's really just all about practice. You know, okay. I I used to be so intimidated when I would decorate cakes, especially when I worked at a bakery because I felt like I was really good at everything up to the point of writing happy birthday or whatever. I was like, this is where I'm going to mess it up is when I have to write on it. And it's it's really just all about practice. Even now when I have a piping bag filled with buttercream and it's leftover, I'll grab a plate for my cabinet and I'll just write random, pipe random things just to, you know, kind of keep myself fresh with it. So yeah. you, you practice, that's all. Do you write with buttercream or you write with like, <laughs> with like the little tubes with the gel in, you know? So I write with, with buttercream yeah, okay. in, in a piping bag, but you can buy tubes of icing for that purpose from the grocery store. Okay. Yeah. See, I never thought to practice. I'm always going right for the cake. That's my first mistake. <laughs> well, and also well, if you take it... an extra time here, which is the issue. <laughs> if you take a cake pan, say you have eight or nine-ish cake pans, whatever you have, you flip it over, you have that flat surface, you can basically decorate the back of a cake pan like it's a cake, scrape the icing off, put it in the bag, do it again, and just keep doing it, and you'll kind of get the hang of it. Ah. Uh, do you, you know? have flower thoughts? Thoughts on I could F L O U R flower because there's so now there are, there are so many. He figured yes. Well, we were talking about decorating. Could have been right, that right, right. I do okay. love houseplants, so we could be talking about that. I different kind of small pivot. Um, because there, I, you go to the store now, and it does seem like there are quite a few options. And I'm not just talking about gluten free like flour substitutes. Just within the the gluten flour section, there seems to be yeah. options. Cake uh, flour. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like what? Help me parse through all that. Yeah, I mean. I would I would go back to something I just said, which is follow the recipe, make yeah. the recipe as it says. If a recipe, whether it's in my book or someone else's, calls for cake flour, there's a reason for it. So you mm-hmm. want to use cake flour. Cake flour has less protein in it or less gluten than is formed than all-purpose flour. The other end of that spectrum is bread flour, which has even more protein or more gluten in it. So you're going to get a chewier consistency, right? So bread flour, chewy, cake flour, super tender, super light. And then all-purpose flour is somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can get away with just using all-purpose flour because it's for all purposes. Uh, but when it comes to cakes and really delicate things, if something says cake flour, I would use cake flour. Uh, and when it comes to brand or whether you're looking for something organic or bleached or unbleached, I would say use what is available to you. Not everything is available everywhere. So right. find something that you like and stick with it because the, consi- the the brand of flour that you're using can affect the outcome of a recipe. So if you find a brand that you really like, just stick with it for consistent results. King Arthur. That's one I see a lot. King Arthur brand flour. Maybe I'll stick with that. It's yeah, memorable. King Arthur is great. I, I lo- I'm a big fan of, of King okay. Arthur. And they have, a, you know, any flour you could need, they have it. Yeah, <laughs> they do. All right. So what should we try if we make one cookie from your book or one thing from your book this holiday season? What would you say we uh, should try? Make one. Well, for the holidays, I would say you definitely have to try the gingerbread cookies. All yeah. right. I think they're really fantastic. They hold their shape really well, and they've got such a nice flavor. All right, gingerbread cookies. Yeah. And, and I, I might try that because I'm actually not typically a huge gingerbread 
fan, okay. and it's what everyone eats this time of year. And I, I am in search of one that I really love. We'll make so, them together, Avi. How's that? <laughs> I, I would love, love to, to see do that, that. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, then you'll post it to your followers and you know make us famous. How about Absolutely. That? There you go. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. So much, we uh, have a deal. <laughs> that's um, Dan Langan, author of Bake Your Heart Out, uh, foolproof recipes to level up your home baking. Uh, was kind enough to bring us cookies, which makes you an A-plus guest in my book right there. But oh, you good, also did good, a great good. job answering our listeners' questions. Yes. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And coming up, we'll stick with the holiday theme. What does it take to get hundreds of millions of holiday packages to your doorstep on time? That's coming up next on Studio 2. And welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erin. And I'm Mike and Scott in for Cherry Greg today. Now, it is time for holiday shopping for a lot of people who are procrastinators. Mm -hmm. The rush is really upon us now. And if you want things to get to your place for the holidays, you better wrap it up. Hundreds of millions of packages get shipped and delivered during December. And those deadlines are fast approaching. I was looking for something online yesterday, Avi, and they kept saying everywhere, like, not delivered for Christmas. Delivered after the new year. I'm like, ah. So... Online shopping has made last-minute gift buying really easy, but then it's a huge lift for workers to get those things to your doorstep. And you can see that, right? All the the FedEx, UPS, Amazon, USPS trucks flying around town. And it made us wonder about the work that goes into getting our orders to our front door. The long-haul truckers, last mail package drivers, U.S. postal workers, and all the changes that e-commerce has brought to those industries. So we turn to University of Pennsylvania sociologist Steve Vaselli, the author of The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream. Steve, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. Hey, Steve. So I was wondering, given that you work in academia, how did you get interested in trucking? Well, trucking is one of the interesting cases in the world of uh, labor where we have a lot of folks who go out and, and, you know, aren't supervised directly by anyone, but work really hard and tremendous hours. And I was wondering what what made those workers tick, particularly as technologies were allowing employers to monitor them more and more. And so I was wondering if uh, satellite linked computers and other forms of monitoring were going to affect the sense of freedom and independence that, you know, these these asphalt cowboys who were who were out doing this, um, you know, sort of manly job that we think of as sort of this, you know, cowboy of the of the modern day, how technology was affecting the work that they did. Because nowadays, so, yeah, sorry, because nowadays truckers are monitored through GPS tracking pretty much the entire time they're on the road. So somebody knows whether this person pulled over, did they take a short nap? Where are they driving? Are they moving? Are they parked? So it's really like every move you make is known. Yeah, every um, everything that we're doing today to increase the speed of the movement of goods is is paired with new technologies that we're using to figure out where stuff is, how fast it's moving, and that's all having an impact on on the workers who are handling and and uh, and driving these goods around for us. 
And talk about that impact, Steve. Like, what is a schedule like for a long-haul trucker, a last-mile delivery uh, driver this time of year? I'm like, what are their shifts like? What type of pressure are they under? Well, things move through the system at different times of the year. So we're in the last-mile delivery phase right now, really getting it to people's door last minute like Mike and who's on the naughty list for shopping (laughs) (laughs) because timing really does matter a lot at the end where, you know, a day or two uh, extra time to get something somewhere means a lot for that last mile delivery phase. So as we get closer and closer, the hours worked by um, your UPS driver, your uh, male man or woman, um, and some of these new, uh, you know, workers that you might see driving around in these Amazon logoed vans, these hours are getting to be very long. So, you know, definitely 10 to 12 hour days for most of these workers at this point, um, at least five days a week, but six is typical. And some, especially in the postal service, may be working up to seven days a week at this point. Um, these are very physical jobs. So, you know, uh, especially for the postal carriers, a lot of walking um, and just a lot of handling of packages, 10, 12 hours a day, six days on average, it gets to be quite tiring at this time of year. And what are some of the new technologies that are changing the nature of the job? So we talked about GPS tracking. Is AI coming into play in perhaps improving routes or making any part of this job more efficient or easier? Yeah, these these kinds of uh, algorithmic management, as as scholars talk about it, but the use of computers essentially to plan and monitor work are having a big impact on last mile delivery in particular. Part of this is is you know if we step back is really about what's being moved, and if you think back ten years, fifteen years ago, what you would have you know received from a service like UPS it would have been a high value good, probably something that you'd sign for, maybe Mm -hmm. legal documents, but at least electronics, maybe the newest fashion and shoes or something like that. Um, Today, what we're shipping is a lot of, you know, less valuable stuff all the way down to kitty litter and, Mm -hmm. you know, paper towels. And what that means is that per unit, you can't really justify a high shipping cost. And of course, Amazon's driving a lot of this. And the, you know, the the point today with this technology and the use of it is to get those shipping costs per unit down. And part of that has been de-skilling the work. So whereas that UPS driver or letter carrier that was moving your stuff 15 years ago uh, was someone who knew that route intimately and was planning it and sort of executing it, you know, based on years of experience, that driver or, or delivery person had, you know, really good wages, benefits, and some of them still do. The way that technology is being used is essentially to de-skill that work. And so now we have apps that allow uh, kind of the Uber for package delivery, which is called Amazon Flex. And a driver might show up in their personal vehicle and pick up 20 or 30 packages and follow step by step the directions of that app. Similarly, Amazon has now those logoed vans that you're probably seeing around your neighborhood where it's a franchise model where workers who don't have much experience at all can follow that same app but use those bigger vans to deliver 250 or 300 packages. And it's all step-by-step guided by that technology. And give us a sense of who's doing this work. Um, Who's signing up to take on these jobs? How long are they staying in these jobs? 
Well, this is a big transformation in the last five years or so. That Amazon service that I just described, it is now in in uh, in scale about the size of the postal service or um, or UPS in terms mm. of the number of packages that it's delivering. Mm. So, you know, around five billion packages a year getting delivered by Amazon's own um, service, which it's created in the last five years, and that has sucked in a huge number of people who you know might have gone to the postal service or might have gone to UPS. Uh, most of these are younger workers who are coming out of retail. And they're looking for a little better wages, and Amazon is actually paying better wages than your typical retail job, um, and they tend to be younger. And you know, part of that is about the physical nature of these jobs. Uh, a letter carrier will walk 15 miles in a day in some days, maybe 20. Um, and these other package delivery services that are primarily driving, they're going to be getting in and out of these vans hundreds of times a day, carrying packages. And so it tends to be a job that's done by younger and healthier folks. And before we go, are there things, you know, obviously I'm already on the naughty list for ordering something <laughs> late, but <You> are. <laughs> I know, I know. What are some things that maybe as customers we, we could not do this time of year that would make things a little bit easier on the other end? About 45 seconds left, Steve. Well, you know, one of the things that's happened is th is that they're including uh, some pricing discounts for buying ahead. And and if you paid attention to what Amazon was doing this year with their Black Friday sales and their Cyber uh, Monday sales, was you know you would you would buy something weeks in advance, and it you wouldn't have that normal two day process uh, promise for delivery. It would come several weeks later, and you were getting the discount. A lot of that is about reducing those those costs, which have to do with that speed. So buying ahead is is really critical. And then be appreciative of of those folks and where they put packages, helping them out, being there for delivery and just, you know, uh, giving them a thank you right now and a smile because it is it is tough work. Tips are always appreciated as our Christmas cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and some of that advice we'll have to implement next year. Yes, uh, But we now will. that we know. Thank you so much, uh, Steve Vaselli, sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the Big Rig, Trucking, and the Decline of the American Dream. Steve, thanks for joining us on Studio Two. Thanks for having me. Mikan, we did it. We did we it. We did it together. That's our show today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Adam Staniszewski engineered today's program from Studio Two at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Mike and Scott, in for Cherry Greg. Thank you so much for joining us and for letting me sit in here today. And eat some cookies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>